Thank you, praise team. And y'all, if you look just from where you're sitting, you know, if you are observing the worship platform, you're only seeing about half of the team that makes our Sunday morning worship time possible. So thank you, band, for your gifts. But also thank you to Karen and Tristan and Julie, who are back behind you today where you cannot see them, who are making sure that everything actually happens and doing a phenomenal job. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you to our special readers this morning, to our guests, and to all who participated. It is always thrilling and exciting to receive that beautiful cacophony of languages, um, which it's interesting. It's a, a really fun way to visualize that Pentecost scene, but it's almost exactly the opposite, where the, the disciples speak in their language and it's heard, it's received in all the other languages. We sort of get an inverse experience with that reading where it's read in all of the languages and we receive it just as the worship that it is. So thank you for being a part of that experience to morning, this morning. So if you were to travel back in time to first century Jerusalem and you asked someone on the street, hi, uh, it's nice to meet you, where is God? they would not have given you some sort of religious flowery answer like you might expect if you ask someone today, if you ask them that same question. They likely wouldn't have theologized their answer at all. If you ask someone in the time of Jesus, where is God, they would most likely give you an address. God lives in the temple. It's that simple. Now, don't misunderstand me. The, uh, the people of God knew that God was way too big to be contained in the temple. There's beautiful poetry about God's omnipresence to be found in the Old Testament. Powerful statements from the faithful about their knowing the presence of God is with them. But there was one place where God most certainly was, and that was the temple. The temple was the place where God's heavenly throne room and earth overlap, where the presence of God could always be found. The temple was proof that God had not abandoned Jerusalem. The temple was proof that God was with the people. So this word, this place, this idea, the temple, we must make sure that we do not confuse it with our ideas around church. For the Yahweh worshiper at the time of Jesus and most of the Old Testament, the temple was the center of the universe, not just a, a place like a church where you would go for school or for worship. That wasn't done necessarily in the temple the way we think about it. This was God's house. And of course, they did have a theological understanding that the building itself wasn't enough to contain the God of the universe. The temple served to remind them of God's presence with them, but also to remind them of the counter-truth that God was not contained in the temple. If we jump back to the very first pages of the Bible, we get this understanding of God loose and free and wild. The very first lines of the Bible introduce us to the Bible's main character, the, the living, creating, triune God of love. In the beginning, this is Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, he says, ready for action, when he describes the Spirit in Genesis 1. Where is God? On the first page of the Bible, second sentence, where is God? God is here. God is on earth in the chaos, drawing out life and order by means of creativity and love. How about chapter 2 of the Bible? Genesis 2, where do we find God? Verse 7, Then the Lord formed a man, a human, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath. By the way, that word breath there, it's the Hebrew word ruach, and it means breath, wind, or spirit. God breathes the breath of the spirit of life, and the man became a living being. How does God in chapter 2 relate to these living beings? Through proximity. God is with them in the garden. God walks and talks with them. God is there with them. Now, we, we know this story, and we know how it continues and how it ends. We know that this relationship is broken by the humans, and that the separation between heavenly God space and humanly earth space becomes a gulf or a chasm. But this is still how God envisions the way that God will relate to the creation through proximity, through closeness. God wants to be here. So, how do we see God pursuing this relationship in the Bible? Let's jump ahead in the story to Exodus. Give me Exodus 13. This is... uh, as God is rescuing the Hebrews out of slavery to be God's representatives in the world. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, a pillar of fire. So we swing back and forth between tornado and volcano. Subtle, you know, so that they could travel day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so God leads the people. In this proximity, in this closeness, God leads the people to Mount Sinai, where God had first spoken to Moses through the burning bush, the fire representing the presence of God again. Now the presence of God rests on the summit of the mountain as the Hebrews gather here in a pillar of fire for all the people to see, and they all see it. Uh, Exodus 19, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet announcing the presence of God grew louder and louder, and then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. God is with the people. And here, God invites the people back to their calling. This is image of God calling of Eden to be God's representatives on the earth, to be a holy nation, a nation of priests, people set apart, priests being someone who represents their deity to the world. Among the many gifts that God gives the people at this time is the gift of the tabernacle, the plans for a tent where God would live with the people in the camp. And when they built it, 
God shows that God is with them, living among them, inhabiting the tent of the tabernacle by covering it in a pillar of cloud and surrounding it with a pillar of fire from heaven. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Eventually, the people enter the promised land. Eventually, it is time under King Solomon to build the first permanently human-made house for God. Second Chronicles chapter 7 shows us the dedication of this temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from the sky and burned up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory had filled the temple, and the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire come down from heaven and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces low to the ground. God moved into the neighborhood. God adopted this permanent mailing address with God's people. And the proof of this is the glory of the Lord coming down from heaven like fire and filling the temple. This is the imagery that the Bible is establishing us for us. Almost a thousand years later, one of the earliest followers of Jesus writes about him saying, the word became flesh. This is John 1. Awesome. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Some translators have tried to clarify, to reveal some of what's going on here by the way they render the text. Here's the same verse from Excellent. This is from the NLT. They're trying to do that for you. And the word became flesh and the, the Greek word there, and tabernacled among us. We looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see it? Do you see it? Jesus is the new temple. The language is all there. Jesus made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled here. We have seen the glory of God in Jesus. Jesus is the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, touch, and overlap. The house of God is now a mobile home. The presence and the glory of God is going on tour. Jesus travels the region, blessing, healing, loving, teaching. He is revealing the will and the presence of God in the world. Everywhere he goes, new things take root. Everywhere he goes, people have genuine encounters with the living God. Everywhere he goes, he brings life and love, grace and truth, hope and healing. Jesus is the presence of God longing to be with the creation and proving God's love for us, for the creation, in Jesus' death and resurrection. But that's not the end of this story, of this, this temple development. Let's go back to our reading from earlier in Acts chapter 2. Excellent. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, the disciples, in one place. And suddenly, the sound like a blowing of a violent wind 
came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you get it? Fire from heaven, glory of God, filled with the Spirit. This is temple language. The early church understood this. Check out this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. Give me that next one. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's a temple. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jumping to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This should all sound familiar. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you're just folks, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see it? A spiritual house, sacrifice, priesthood. This is temple language. Paul gets it and gets in on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Do you not know that? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is what Pentecost is all about. The temple has been democratized. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrives like a violent windstorm as it inhabits the first followers of Jesus in an act that looks just like the dramatic arrival of God's glory and God's Spirit on Sinai, on the tabernacle, and in the temple. Something new is happening here. These people are receiving that wind, which in the Greek, just like the Hebrew, the Greek is pneuma. It means wind, breath, or spirit. This ties us back to, to Genesis to the tabernacles, to what's going on here. They receive the wind in their space. God is breathing spirit into them like the first humans back in Genesis. This is new creation language. Something has changed. These early followers of Jesus have gained access to something holy and powerful, but they're still themselves. They, they've begun a sort of transformation, but they're still individuals. They're still the way that God has built them. They're still human. They, like Jesus, are still human, but they have discovered a new way to be human in the world. Some of the power and courage of Jesus, it lives in them now. Like the heroes of the Old Testament, the Spirit has come into them to empower them to change the world we see it right away, that they are emboldened to preach the gospel, the story of Jesus in a hostile world, in a hostile city. But the Holy Spirit 
also amplifies, emboldens and amplifies their work through the Spirit's supernatural power. The result of this wild scene is the birth of the church. A new people, a new mission, called to live in a new way, to join God in the welcoming and discovering of the new creation. But the Spirit doesn't stop at Pentecost. The early church, all through Acts, believes that that same Spirit is available to any who would accept Jesus and his kingship in their lives. In doing so, everyone who says yes to Jesus becomes a priest, someone who shows the world what God is like. They become inhabited and empowered by the Holy Spirit, emboldened to live in a completely new way. They're the priest and the temple. The Spirit lives in them, and they show the world what the Spirit is like. And in being this place, where the Spirit lives, the followers of Jesus, they've become little temples. Sites, locations where heaven and earth can touch, overlap. They become conduits of God's love and justice, God's goodness and God's hospitality. This changes everything. It has to. The first Christians, they, like we just read above, they, they say, do you not know that your body is a temple? They say it changes the way that we think about our bodies and the way we think about our ownership over them and our lives. It changes the way we think about the world and the state of creation. It changes the way that we think about our money and our civic lives as our hearts are turned outwards for the sake of others. It changes the way we relate to our families and gives us access to a new global, hyper-temporal family in the church, the family of God in all times and all places. It changes our identity. It changes everything. It has to. You can't encounter God in this way and not be transformed. You can't meet Jesus and not be changed. Maybe that's why the people in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when the Christians arrive, they exclaim, in a little bit of anxiety, the men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It changes us. It makes us brave. It makes us loving. One of the popular definitions of spirituality, that is having a relationship with the spiritual, the spirit, is to be continually conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of the world. I love the word continually in that definition, because this doesn't happen all at once. When you say yes to Jesus and receive the Spirit, some things are immediate. The religious language would be that you've passed from death to life. That's quick, and that's immediate, and that's beautiful and powerful. Uh, Luther and many of the reformers like to use legal language. You receive full pardon and transfer from captivity to freedom. Those are big dramatic shifts, Paul says when you come to Christ, you are a new creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about the gifts of the Spirit. When the Spirit is unleashed in your life, you receive a gift or gifts, something that God knows you need for the fulfillment of your calling in the world and for the sake of the church and others. Sometimes it's something completely new. Um, one of the ways that I've seen the gift of the Spirit in my life 
is I have always been horrified of talking in front of people. And now I am a preacher. Something has shifted. Sometimes the Spirit gives you something completely new. Sometimes the Spirit takes something you already have, a a talent, a skill, an aptitude, and dials it up to 11 for the sake of the kingdom and the church and the gospel. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So we have the gift of the Spirit, something, boom, a gift is given and received. And the fruit of the Spirit, fruit grows, fruit takes time. When the Spirit is unleashed in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is unleashed in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness. These are attributes that the Spirit cultivates, produces in us as we mature, as we grow more like Christ, as we progress on our journey with God, the Spirit grows things in us. And it is a journey. It's a process. Some seasons of growth come fast, and sometimes we feel stuck. First, or, uh, Philippians chapter 1-6 reminds us to trust the process. It says, being confident in this. Paul says, I'm confident about you. I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, that's the Spirit, will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Began, work, good, complete. These words should jump out at us. This is creation language again. It's also language that was used around the construction of the temple. Takes us all the way back to Genesis. The same creative, loving spirit, the same power and energy that started the cosmos is available in the life of the believer the same passionate guiding spirit that led the freed slaves out of Egypt and showed them how to be human in the desert again is available in your life. The same glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple, the same holiness so thick that even Moses couldn't enter the tent to speak with God, the same justice as found in the tabernacle and the temple, that's available in your life. The same humility, love, kindness, and care that we encounter in Jesus, is available in your life. The same spirit that ignited the church and changed the world is available in your life. For those who choose to say yes, for those who who accept, and we use the language of accept, you accept Jesus, because there's really nothing else you can do with him. You can't earn, you can't work for, you can't, There's nothing you can do to get closer. You accept that Jesus has already done the hard stuff for you. And in doing so, our lives are changed. They're transformed. We're made brave. We're made strong. We're made loving and gentle. We're made more and more like Christ for the sake of the world. Maybe all of this sounds foreign to you. Maybe you're here today as a believer and you're not sure that these things I've said are entirely true. This doesn't line up with your experience. Maybe you're wondering, you're curious, where is this power in my life? Where is this new creation stuff? Maybe it's time to shift back into a position 
of acceptance, of welcome, of asking for more, for welcoming more Jesus, more spirit into your life. We, we sometimes use the language of rededication, and it's become cliche. It's something you do on the third night of summer youth camp. You rededicate your life. But we should be continually rededicating, reseeking, and asking. Jesus always talks about asking. Asking for more Jesus, more spirit, more God in our life. And maybe, maybe this is completely new to you, and you've never had this encounter. You've never said yes to Jesus. These, these are the promises. These are the things that Jesus offers you. Nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit in your life for the sake of your transformation and the transformation of the world. To be one of those who turn the world upside down. That is Pentecost. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are, in fact, welcome here. We, we invite you to, to flood our lives with the knowledge of your presence. We ask you to open us up to the possibility of being the kind of people that you've said that we already are. Wow, that's a dangerous statement. There's so many promises in Scripture, so many statements, just facts that, that you, you lay out about what kind of people the church is, not should be, not could be, is. There's, there's that acceptance again. Give us the courage to accept that you've done the hard work. Give us the courage to accept that you are active and present in our lives and to step into that reality as our own. We thank you for the beauty of your church, the beauty of your scriptures, the grand diversity of your church global and your church triumphant, of all the ways that you have moved in different times and places, and that you're still, you're, you're calling us forward, you're starting new things, you're never finished. Give us the strength and the courage and the, the vision to see where you are going and to follow you. We love you, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We at Townview believe that the Spirit is here, that the Spirit is alive, that the Spirit is active, that the Spirit is speaking, and as God speaks, we respond. For the next few moments, the band is going to lead us in worship again. This is a time to respond to whatever you've received in worship today. Maybe you encountered God in, in music or scripture or in, in the ordered chaos of the Acts 2 reading. Maybe you encountered God today in the sermon or the text or in the silent moments in between. God is in all of that, working and moving and making things new. It, wherever you encountered that newness today, take this next time of worship to identify that, to, to thank God for that encounter, and to, to use that to catapult you into what's next.